Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, guys, today on the show, you are in for a treat. We have on the show best-selling author, Billy Carson. Now, I've been following Billy for some time now, and his research into ancient civilizations is just remarkable. He is an MIT alumni with a certificate of science, emphasizing in neuroscience. He has written multiple best-selling books including one of the best books I've ever read on the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. And Billy and I have a wonderful conversation about ancient civilizations, spirituality, what happens to the soul, and so much more. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome the show, Billy Carson. How are you doing, Billy? All right, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I've been a fan of yours. Like I was telling you before, the Thank algorithm you. keeps feeding me you constantly on my <laughs> on my YouTube scroll and shorts and stuff yeah. because you are prolific, to say the least. You are out there. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you to the algorithms that feed me. <laughs> <laughs> no question, man. So we're going to have a, a deep conversation today about ancient civilizations, lost history, and how it affects uh, evolu- our, so our soul's evolution in this on this planet and societies in, in general, humanity's evolution. But my first question is, what sparked your interest in researching this kind of work, the ancient civilizations and lost history? I always had kind of an interest in ancient civilizations, just a service interest as a kid, because I was researching and reading about aerospace through the encyclopedias. But once I got through all the aerospace information, uh, I then started looking at, of course, you know, uh, the seven wonders of the world and the pyramids and you know, all these other areas around the world that uh, really have these amazing structures, Peru and Machu Picchu and the Nazca lines and so forth. So I had this intriguing want and need to go see these things. And I finally got a chance to go about 26 or 27 years ago. Now, my first trip out of the country was to Teotihuacan and Chichen Itza and all that down into Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go somewhere close. But it wasn't really until around 2010 that I had a really strange experience. Uh, It's something that it took me a long time to talk about, but it was like a close encounter experience. But after that close encounter experience, I ended up looking and uh, at this this website that exists. It's called WorldWideTelescope.org. All right. And the reason why I went to that website was because after this experience, that phrase was in my head over and over again. So I ended up going to Excite.com and looking for a worldwide telescope. I looked for a worldwide telescope, found it. It was actually all the space probe data for all the missions ever sent into space, pretty much from Earth, uh, from NASA, European Space Agency, 
even some other space agencies were in there, like there was some Russian data, so forth. I think now they've even added some, some, some China data, believe it or not. But it, regardless, it took me to Mars panoramas, which I went and looked at Mars panoramas where rovers were actually on Mars. And some of those images had anomalies in them, things that I thought didn't appear, shouldn't be there. But what was really interesting was some of those anomalies had resemblances of megalithic stone structures here on Earth from ancient civilizations that I have been studying and even visited. And so that was like, wait a minute, could there be a connection between these anomalies on Mars and what I'm seeing on Earth? And then I dug deep into ancient civilizations, like on another level from there, and dedicated my life to traveling the world. I've now looped this planet about 16 times. I've been to over 259 cities just in the last 24 months, 11 countries in the last 24 months. And I've gone and dedicated myself to going to all these ancient sites and meeting with the indigenous people, uh, meeting with homegrown archaeologists and guides on site and doing my own research so I can try to see how I can, you know, uh, make this connection between the two. And I think that I have. So how can you, um, how can these, well, first of all, I've been to Chichen Itza. It's absolutely remarkable. And when I stand there, you do that clap technique yeah. and you hear it bounce back. You're like, how the hell did they build that stuff? Like, it's like, at a whole other level, which brings me to my first question. Did they, did the cultures of the Mayans and the Aztecs come across these monolithic things? Because it seems to me that it's very difficult to connect a culture that can build such beautiful and highly sophisticated structures and then be cutting hearts out and sacrificing right. them off the edge. It doesn't connect. What's your, no. what's your, uh, what's your, what thinks? It doesn't connect at all. And initially when I started studying the mines about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. I was like, man, this is really bizarre. Like these incredible structures are here. I know that it takes a high level of understanding and technology and consciousness to be able to construct and become a master architect to even design and build out these things. But at the same time, I'm studying how they would sacrifice virgins into wells, hoping that it would rain and they were cutting people's hearts out and, People would, you know, play this ball game. And if you won the game, they'd cut your head off. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. This, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And so they would even kill kids. They would like sacrifice children. And I'm like, something's not adding up. So I, when I went to uh, Chichen Itza and Teotihuacan, these areas for the second time in my life, I hired a homegrown guide. I got a guide, an archaeologist that I hired, not someone who went to the mainstream situation, but somebody who can give you the real facts. They brought me documentation that they actually teach in university in Mexico. And the Mayans actually arrived on site after the Teotihuacans. And that the Mayans actually inherited what was already there. The Aztecs came even later than the Mayans. The Aztecs had a volcano erupt in their valley, destroyed their entire uh, you know, uh, town. They had to migrate out. They stumbled into Teotihuacan and kind of just moved in and took over. And so a lot of the knowledge was lost uh, and the Mayans and the Aztecs built absolutely nothing, not to take away anything from them. They were still a great culture, but they inherited what was already there. When I then track backtrack the information to the Sumerian tablets, where you find out that Thoth the Atlantean, who was ruling over the land of Kem, which is now called Egypt, he began to have some, uh, some arguments and fights with his brother, Amun-Ra. And their father, Enki, said to Thoth, 
go to the other side. Go, go, go to Mesoamerica and take some Almix with you. He took some Almix with him from Africa to Mesoamerica, and he and those Almix kickstarted and created the whole Teotihuacan civilization. Where he then he, over there he became known as several people: Quetzalcoatl, uh, you know, uh, Kukulkan, Lord Pakal, and so forth and so on. But it's really all the same person, the same being. Veracocha, he's also known as Veracocha in different parts of Mesoamerica, but it's the same exact person, the feathered serpent. And him and the Olmecs kickstarted and built that entire civilization, which then at some point they just disappeared or left. And then the Mayans came in and inherited what was there already. You said the Olmecs, they are considered the original. A mysterious kind of people that were there prior to the the, the Incas, the the Mayans, yes. the Aztecs, the Olmecs. Who were the Olmecs? According to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Olmecs were these Africans that left and came across with. Uh, they were stonemasons that came across with Thoth. And he's also known as Dahudi or Jehudi in Africa. They came here with him long before the Mayans even arrived. Long before Christopher Columbus. Uh, you know, accidentally landed on a Caribbean island and so on. So these people were here so long ago. There's even records of them doing trade back and forth between here and Africa with the indigenous peoples that were here too. So there, and then it was even cross mating and cross breeding. So uh, they actually merged with some of the people that were here as well. So it's pretty interesting. There's a book, I believe it's called Before Columbus. And it has a big Almec head on it. And you can research, research that. It, ha it has a lot of great sources to document and prove that this culture had arrived here hundreds of years before the Mayans even, uh, you know, existed. Are we? Yeah. When did they actually show up? What the timeline wise? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The timeline from here now would be for us roughly about six to seven thousand years ago. That's when the old Mexico showed up. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, okay. super old. It's a really ancient culture, like really mm -hmm. ancient. By the, you know, and what's interesting is um, if you look at even some of the pictures from the 17 and 1800s, uh, some of the sketches in the 1700s, some of the actual photos that came through out of the late 1800s, you see that that entire region was almost completely covered. Yeah. And archaeologists had to spend a lot of time digging out those structures, which means that at the time that the mines were there, it was probably around close to a thousand years ago. Uh, and then, you know, from there, uh, closer into modern, maybe 600 years ago, you have the Aztecs. And then from there, it's just all dilapidated. The mainstream wants you to think this stuff was so recent. But the evidence of even just um, the, the, the erosion and so forth give us a date that goes way further back than what we have. Yeah, because they've been finding these Olmec uh, heads all around Mesoamerica and Mexico and South yeah. America. And nobody mm -hmm. really understood where they came from. The masonry right. in, in some of the stuff, I mean, it's just at a whole other level of, yeah. of yeah. how they're constructing it. I mean, you look at some of these, some of these megalith structures and the way that the rocks kind of connect, they're like curved mm -hmm. and they, and they like, I was watching a documentary the other day about it. And they're like, yeah, they ground rock here and there. I'm like, are you absolutely, <laughs> you know, what? Uh, it, with these yeah. 20 ton giant blocks, yeah. you're talking about with sandpaper? Are you really? And then moving it? I mean, like, how do you yeah. move that? Like, come on. It doesn't make any sense. They're crazy. 
And you got to remember, we're talking about some of these areas were kind of in arid areas. Um, like, for example, Teotihuacan is in the desert. You know? mm -hmm. but, but, you know, what's interesting is <laughs> Teotihuacan gives away the master architect because in the Emerald Tablets, both claims have built the Great Pyramid. And that text is 36,000 years old. And even archaeologists uh, that teach at universities like Robert Schock, right? He mm -hmm. says that based on weathering patterns, just on the Sphinx alone, it's at least 13,000 years old, at least, at the minimum. And it goes even beyond, I believe, deeper than that. But you look at the Great Pyramid Complex at Giza, and you see the three pyramids there, and you look at the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, and then you go look at the three pyramids that align the same exact way at Teotihuacan with Orion. But then you also look at the dimensions of the Pyramid of the Sun, which is the biggest pyramid there. It's the same exact base size. The base is identical to the size of the base at Giza all the way in Africa. Coincidence? I doubt it. The second thing that's interesting is the height of the Pyramid of the Sun is exactly 50% the height of the Great Pyramid at Giza. That's interesting, right? They also built Teotihuacan on a gradual slope so that the second, you know, the other two pyramids that are there are the same exact height of the Pyramid of the Sun, even though they're smaller pyramids. Uh, and the Pyramid of the Moon is actually eight pyramids built on top of each other with a fractal type of construction technique. I mean, it, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> and both of these sites are built on top of aquifers. So again, it's giving up, the, the archaeology is giving up the master architect, who I believe is Thoth the Atlantean, that ruled over the land of Kemet, according to the ancient Egyptians, for 16,000 years. So you've mentioned Thoth for a, a couple times in this conversation. I know who he is based on watching mm -hmm. you forever. Can you explain yeah. <laughs> to the audience who, who is Thoth and what are the Emerald Tablets? Yeah. So Thoth, T-H-O-T-H uh, -H is his name, Thoth. He's, uh, according to himself, he calls himself an Atlantean king. Now, the priests that were left behind after he left, they call him an Atlantean priest king. The ancient Egyptians, uh, you know, call him a king or a god. He ruled over them for 16,000 years. We're talking about a very, very long time ago. We're talking about 54,000 BC. This is ancient, pre-dynastic era, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, this gentleman claims to have built the Great Pyramid. But what's interesting is he... His emerald tablets, which are a text that he authored himself. He didn't have a scribe that authored these texts. Usually these gods or these kings or these really important people would have a scribe etching what they're speaking. He wrote these tablets himself and left them behind for this generation that we are in right now to understand, break down, analyze, and actually learn from. What was interesting in these tablets is he talks about this flood in the opening uh, verses, this great flood that has swept across the land. Again, more evidence of a great flood. He talks about the fact that the temples were coming up out of the mud and that his mission now was to go and raise mankind back up to a high level of civilization. In other words, we had already been in a high level prior to this flood, potentially some type of a golden age, high level, high tech civilization existed before this flood destroyed the planet. And now him and his crew, he took a crew with him. He got into the great ship of the master, according to his writings. And this wasn't a ship that sailed out on the ocean because he said, upward we rose into the sky, into the sun, until beneath us, the planet, it basically disappeared, the earth disappeared. So we're talking about a ship that flies up and out, not that sails across water. Until the time appointed, he said, he looks down beneath the ship 
lay the land of the children of Kem, and he sees an ancient temple coming up out of the mud, and then they descend down from, and I think, I think these ancient people knew what descend and ascend and, you know, sailing and flying. Mm -hmm. I, knew, I think they knew the difference between the, all those terminologies. So he's saying he descended down to the ground, and then the people by this time had become barbarians. And so they had lost their technology, had lost, you know, a lot of their language and everything else because of this global disaster that happened. Probably a couple generations have gone by or whatever, I'm assuming. But they come to attack him when he opens the door to his ship and come out, him and his crew. And he, he raises his staff and he sends out a ray of vibration, which stops him still as fragments of stone of a mountain. So he has a stun gun that can freeze you in place, just like we have the active denial system in the military that sends a beam at a crowd of rioters and can freeze them in their tracks, make them feel like they're vomiting, make them feel like they're on fire, put words in their head, make them put them in pain, make them run away. Same technology he has. And then he releases them and he begins to talk about peace with them. And he says, I'm a son of Atlantis and I'm here to raise you back up to a high level of civilization. So this guy is interesting because after he created this new civilization here in the land of Kemet before it was known as Egypt, he then told his crew to go around the planet and duplicate what they had done there. So he's the master architect. His crew went around the world and re-kickstarted civilization in different regions of this planet most likely along that 33rd degree parallel. Uh, and uh, right. it's just, to me, evidence that after a flood, we had some assistance in getting back on our feet. So, and that was another question I was going to ask you, is like, how is it possible that the pyramids of, of Egypt, the pyramids of Mesoamerica, the pyramids of Japan, the pyramids in China, the pyramids mm -hmm. in India, which are all close to that 33 degree that you're talking about? Yeah technically supposedly never had any contact never could have had any contact with each other right. over thousands of years in theory in theory it makes mm -hmm. sense it makes sense yeah if you only stop the timeline to a certain point but if you take right. the timeline farther back and these mm -hmm. ideas that are being talked about in the emerald tablets then it starts to make more sense because i just always wonder like how is it that you know 6000 years ago or 4000 years ago we we're building quote unquote the great pyramids and then we're mm -hmm. and then two thousand years ago, or not even, I think they said, yeah. how old is is uh, Chichen Itza according to mainstream archaeology? A thousand twelve hundred years old, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. They're saying a thousand twelve hundred years. That's just maximum they're giving it. I mean, like, I'm okay. Okay, it, it just it just doesn't make any it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. I mean, no, their numbers are their, their numbers are far off. I mean, it, 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 in, if you go to the Nazca lines in Peru. And you see, yeah. you see the mountain there. They shaved the entire mountain off. Right. Like where where did all the remnants of the mountain go? You know, I mean, I mean, how do you shave a mountain back then? I mean, so the numbers that they're giving for the dates of these things, they just don't exist. This this stuff is ancient, man. Really, super ancient. So the uh, so so Thoth is the master architect out of all, and then you say yeah. Atlanteans. So yeah. obviously, Atlantis is very famous because of Plato. We all know about mm -hmm. Atlantis. Um, yeah. In your opinion, where, where where's Atlantis? What was Atlantis? And yeah. what was Lum is it Lumeria that was yeah prior, Lumeria prior to Atlantis? Mm -hmm. Correct. What was those yeah. things? How do they connect? Yeah, I'll start. I'll start with Lumeria. When you look at um, you know the culture coming out of the Aboriginals out of Australia, even the Aboriginal elders that I've talked to still have handed down verbal history of Lumeria, and it being an island that now has since sunk off the coast of uh, Australia, in some ways was even kind of connected, but that they were seated on this planet. 
This is not Billy Carson saying this. This is the aboriginal elders, thousands of years handed down verbal history that they were seated on this planet in Lemuria by Pleiadians. Mm -hmm. The Pleiadians brought them to this planet and seated them in Lemuria and helped build a golden age there in Lemuria, a spiritual golden age. Okay, a spiritual, something, something, not tech, consciously spiritual, where people had the capability of telekinesis, uh, you know, psychic abilities, speaking to each other without opening their mouths and so forth and everything, um, and navigation through, you know, the geomagnetic fields using the magnetite crystals in their brain and everything else. Uh, at some point, there's a corruption that happened and that island did sink, but the aboriginals sustained on Australia, which are still there till this very day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And there's still even remnants of these Pleiadian hieroglyphs, which I've seen with my own eyes in Australia when I went there a few years ago, out in the outback. I went for, I went for a walk about in the outback with some aboriginals. We went out and we saw these glyphs. And to, to date, nobody in the world has been able to decipher these hieroglyphs, but they have been dated. 5,000 years old, based on the patina inside the, you know, carvings of the glyphs, you can date that, that, that organic material, they're 5,000 years old. Pretty interesting. So um, now fast forward to Atlantis, all of a sudden these beings arrive here, they're called the Anunnaki, right? The Anunnaki means those who from heaven came to earth. It's a generalized term, just like if you and I were to travel to another planet right now and they say, hey, where are you guys from? We're going to say, we're earthlings. Right, we're Boca not going to say Raton. Right, yeah, we're going to say Boca Raton, a Floridian from Boca Raton. You know what I'm saying? We're just going to say we're Earthlings. Right. So Anunnaki is a generalized term for people who don't understand or know what that term means. And that name has been used in the Enuma Elish, in the Seven Tablets of Creation, the Atrahasis epic, the Bible, they call the Anak. It says, we were as grasshoppers in their eyesight. And so this terminology of the Anunnaki is well known. It's in the Torah. It's everywhere. It's a well-known name. It's not a fabricated or made-up name by Zachariah Sitchin. It's actually a real name in ancient text that you can actually find if you look for it. Mm -hmm. And so, but these were, they created a, a civilization. Now, the civilization that the Anunnaki built is called the Atlantean civilization. Now, Atlantis, according to Plato, right, and, and the, what, the, what, he's, what he described, is that, described it as, seems to have been this giant ring city, which would have been in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantis, Atlantic. And there's remnants of cities sunken in the Atlantic Ocean. We know this now just by basic oceanography. However, that ring city that was described was just one capital on Earth. One capital of many capitals, probably one of the most beautiful capital cities that existed on Earth, that ring city in the Atlantic Ocean, but not the only capital. There were people ruling in regions all over the planet, and Atlantis was just, this ring city of Atlantis was just one. There was a, at a time there was a war that went on, disagreements happened, the golden age began to fall, and these beings, these advanced beings, started going to war against each other for control and domination of humans and resources on this planet and other planets as well in our solar system, one of them being the moon and Mars. And they actually had a battle. So this battle is also well recorded in Sumerian tablets tales. They had these wars that went on. And these wars extended from Earth to the moon all the way to Mars, hence why Mars is called the god of war. And this remnants and, and evidence of weapons-grade xenon in the atmosphere on Mars from the Mars Global Surveyor and in the soil from the actual science kits on the rovers. 
We know that there's weapons-grade xenon. Weapons-grade what? That's remnants of nuclear warfare that happened. So at some point in the ancient past, these beings went uh, to these, you know, these WMDs, and they went to war against each other, destroying each other or attempting to destroy each other. But Atlantis was not just a ring city. It was a interplanetary civilization. And no matter where you are on Earth, we're all standing or sitting on top of Atlantis at this exact moment. That it's absolutely fascinating. The and this war that you're talking about is very clearly stated in the Bhagavad Gita and in yes. the Vedic texts. I mean, specific, like literal specifics yeah. of you know, uh, space, space, not space, but like aerial crafts, wars going mm -hmm. off, nuclear, yeah. uh, some sort of explosion. Uh, mm -hmm. what it's 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 been talked about. It's highly detailed. They even Damn. tell you what the name of the weapons are. The names of the, the Brahma Honda. They have the Brahma Honda weapon. You know, they have these weapons that once they're released, you can't even stop it. There's no way to deactivate it. They have this one weapon that can destroy any man on three worlds. They have they had a weapon that can even destroy a planet. I mean, uh, these guys weren't sitting around 10,000 years ago and going, let's make a sci-fi movie, you know, like what? Star Trek or Star Wars. You know, <laughs> you know we just we got nothing to do today. So we're going to write a sci-fi movie and we're going to spend countless hours, you know, etching this stuff into stone tablets and, you know, it just didn't happen. This, they recorded what happened, I believe. And it's probably the closest to the truth we're going to get. There's always his story, but I think we're getting as close as we can possibly get in the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas. They talk about the Vamanas, the ships that used to fly, right? And they had the uh, the mercury-based engine. So they use a ferrofluid mm -hmm. vortex mercury-based right. engine to fly silently from place to place. They could take an accompaniment of men from Earth to the moon. Who's writing this in ancient times? These people knew what they were talking about. They even left behind flight plans and the designs of the Vamanas they used to fly in. So the evidence is fully abound. It's just that mainstream wants to ignore it so they can keep a, a particular agenda and a mindset flowing through the main civilization, the main population, for the purposes of monetization and suppression of ancient technologies that the military and other private corporations are investigating and probably activating and utilizing in their own, uh, you know, for their own services. So yeah, I was going to say, what's the purpose of lying about all of this information? It doesn't make yeah. financial sense. I, I mean, just, but you just kind of laid out a couple of the reasons, but. It's starting to get to the circumstantial evidence that is this kind of stuff that they kept tossing around, like, oh, that's no, no. But now things are coming up that you just you just can't ignore any go Gobekli Tepe just showed up uh, a little while yeah. ago. That's dated 13,000 <laughs> years. So that pushes the timeline back. Uh mm -hmm. the work that Grant Hancock's doing. Uh oh, man. I mean, he's he's leading the way. And he's as they say, yeah. the first one through the wall is the is the bloodiest. And he's yeah. only that, no question. Oh man. No doubt. <laughs> but so, so in your opinion, how far back does the human story go? I believe it goes back, well, I'll tour it this way, two, two ways. The first way is this. The Anunnaki appeared to have arrived based on the reading of the tablets around 450,000 years ago. Now, that's significant because when they arrived here on this planet, they were creating a breakaway civilization with no intention of engaging uh, what we will call homo sapien or our, we weren't homo sapien yet we were it was our cousins some type of a hominid that was here we know the hominid was here because they state that the hominid was already here they said there was a being here there was already had their little communities and existences 
but we were at a certain level and they added their essence to us to genetically modify and create homo sapiens sapien after many experiments. However, our cousins were already here. So 450,000 years ago, we were here. We weren't in trees acting like monkeys and, and, you know, and eating bananas and all this kind of crazy stuff. This bilateral bipedal version of a hominid, what we kind of almost look like now, existed already on this planet. Now, according to these tablets, they worked the creating canals and cities and so forth and mining for resources and everything else, developing a civilization for around 200,000 years to 250,000 years, roughly, before they almost went to war against each other because they themselves were tired of doing the work and the kings of Earth, Anu, Enki, and Enlil, were, they felt like they were forcing them to do this labor and they were tired and they complained that they needed a break. And so they decided to go to war. This is in the Epic of Atrahasis. And so they went to South Africa to Adam's calendar, where they found the oldest gold mines that exist, 200,000-year-old gold mines. And they encircled the campus, and they began to get ready to go to war. And Enki had an idea. says, look, let us take the existing being on this planet and add our essence to them and get them to bear the load of the labor. So basically create a slave race. Not from dust, not from actual... Like, you know, the Bible says, you, you, you take some clay and wet clay and spit on it and blah, blah, blah. No, from actually from taking a being that's here already, genetically tinkering with it, making it, inserting a worship gene, which we know the gene for worship was inserted into the genome. We know that for a fact now through uh, genetic studies, and it can be turned on and it can also be turned off. We'll get them to worship us. They'll think we're God and they'll do the work just to be, just to honor us. And they put them out there to do all the work and, and take the load away from the EGG, the working class Anunnaki. And that's how that initial war was kind of thwarted. And so that's what happened. You know, we, we literally were re-engineered uh, re to become a slave race on this planet. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You mentioned the Sumerians. When were the Sumerians, and who, and were they a part of the Anunnaki? Well, Sumerians were beings that were here. They were the first, according to the tablets, like one of the first races to be genetically tinkered with and kind of or the, or the origins of, quote-unquote, mankind. A lot of the tablets go back about six to 8,000 years, which is why a lot of the biblical texts only record 6,000 years of Earth's history because they took their history and information from Sumerian tablets. The Sumerian tablets were directly copied right into a biblical text in the Old Testament. And this is why people who become Christians believe the earth is only 6,000, you know, the zealots, 6,000 years old, but that's actually not accurate. They're only getting, coming up with that number because that's the date of the majority of the Sumerian tablets where the information was plagiarized. Uh, but we know that those tablets now, because we keep finding older tablets, we know that those tablets are copies of even older tablets. So as tablets get passed on from time to time, and they age or they want to take a copy of a tablet to another region, it would be copied. In other words, somebody would sit there with a stylus and copy the information from tablet to tablet. So there's versions and versions and versions. We've even found an older version of the, of the Enuma Elish. And so even in the oldest version, the planet there's a planet named Nibiru in the oldest version. But in the more recent version, which is all about 6,000 years old, it's named Marduk because Marduk changed the name to his name because he wanted to be the destroyer. So there's versions of these tablets that exist over time. They're, they're, they've been recopied. So let's let's dive into the Bible a little bit because that's a really interesting 
uh, idea uh, because I was raised Christian. We, I mean, I, and I learned the, the story and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I became more curious as I got older about trying to investigate yeah. things and, and things that made more sense to me. But can you talk a little bit about the council of Nicaea, uh, which yeah. most Christians and Catholics don't really know that history. And because mm-hmm. everything, according to the, to the world, that the, uh, according to dogma, uh, it's the word mm-hmm. of God. And, Right. It, yeah. it, it could yeah. very well be, but the physical aspects of how the Bible was created and edited was all in the Council of Nicaea. So can you explain to people who've never heard of this? This is history, mm-hmm. by the way. This is not made up. Yeah. This is not fake right. history. This is actual ancient history. Yeah, it's real history. You know, the Council of Nicaea, uh, under Pope uh uh, his name is the Rome, no Roman Emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine. Um, you know, in Rome had decided, like, you know what, man, we're battling against this Christianity, this monotheistic <laughs> mindset. And it's like, you know, it's it's taking a lot of toll on us. Financially, it doesn't make any sense. These people are rebelling against us nonstop. And this thing still is growing. Even as much as we rebuke it, it keeps growing. Maybe we should just adopt it, you know? Maybe we should just adopt this. Uh, and bring it in and add our pagan holidays to this thing. And now we can tax and we can take the tithes and all the offerings. And so it seemed like a great idea. The Council of Nicaea, they came together and they started analyzing a lot of the uh, the text that was left behind that was orchestrating the majority of obviously the Old Testament of the Bible, information from the Torah and, uh, you know, different scripts that were left and found in caves and va- vases and, and over time. And they said, you know what, let's let's make this into one book. Instead of having all these separate scrolls and texts all over the place, let's make this into one canonized Bible. And so they began to handpick information from different texts. A lot of the texts that they had found on these uh, on these scrolls, these Dead Sea Scrolls and scriptures, Nakamadi and other ancient texts, uh, Torah and so forth, they literally had already been copied from Sumerian tablets, the majority of them, Sumerian tablets, the Mahabharata, some from the Bhagavad Gita, some from, believe it or not, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is really called the Egyptian Book of Going Forth by Day. And so then there were other books that existed, which are the apocryphal books that they decided to keep out, like the Book of Enoch and the Book of uh, of Adam and all these other books. This is an incredible amount of information. They literally like, yeah, put this in, modify that, or change these two verses around, edit this, delete that, leave it in, but delete that statement, cut this story down, the story is too long, take it out, don't talk about this, don't talk about that. And so they made this remix of the text, and they put it into this book called the Canonized Bible, and then they began to put that out and said, this is the word of God. No, it's the word of man, it's a true remix is what it is. You know what I'm saying? So they, they took information that was already copied and plagiarized and then remixed it even more. So the problem that you have with the Bible is you have some truths mixed with some information that's part truth, part lie, remixed by mankind, and some information that's completely, absolutely fabricated altogether when you're talking about hell and you're talking about raptures and all this kind of stuff. That stuff doesn't even exist. So it's a pretty interesting book, and they but they realized that the power of of the information and the domination and control they could put on masses with that book 
They knew that they can literally talk, dominate and take over masses and masses of people. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, and it's unfortunate because it, it put us into a time loop where we, it slowed down the progression of humanity's technological advances. There was a scientific study done based on the Arabs, where we were in the 1800s, and the technological advances that were coming out of the Arabs, believe it or not. And they realized that if it wasn't for the Inquisitions and the Roman Empire and so forth, we could have been on the moon in the 1800s. That's how far back religion has set humanity. So it's a pretty interesting thing. And the book today obviously still has a huge grab, grab on people's consciousness. And because of, the, of mankind's unwillingness to really research and investigate the information, uh, it still has a, head, a heavy grasp on us and, and will for quite some time, even though people are now beginning to wake up and ask more questions and dig deeper into the text and look for answers and ask questions about the contradictory information in there, there's still a lot more work to do. Yeah, I mean, it's known uh, in, throughout the dogma that some somebody, a bunch of priests sat down and just like mm -hmm. wrote down and like was channeling the word of God through the whole book. And then at the end, they're like, look what we've done. Uh, but that's not the case based on on just historical fact. Yeah. It, it's just, I yeah. mean, when you just do a slight bit of research and it's not yeah. to take away from the essence of. No, not at all. What the teachings are. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of good in the in the Bible. And there's a lot of great lessons and and ways to live life and you know all mm -hmm. of that stuff. But it is not a complete idea. I mean, look, let's talk about Jesus for a second. Yeah. As Yoga as Yogananda says, he was crucified on one day, but his teachings have been crucified for the last two thousand years. And <laughs> as as beautiful of a statement as I've ever heard, because yeah. it's so true. So who, from your research? was mm -hmm. the real man that was Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was Yeshua. That was his name, Yeshua, uh, which is, I think, translates into Joseph. Basically, that's his real name. And, and mm -hmm. if you want to use an American tongue. Uh, now, this was a real person that existed. Some people are like, oh, he was just an imaginary person. No, no, no. There's a lot of evidence that he actually existed. He lived. He breathed. He had blood in his veins. He was a walking man, M-A-N. It wasn't, uh, you know, uh, some type of a flying guy with wings on his back. He was a man. He came through a womb. Now, but here's what's interesting, though. There was a little something different about this, this guy. The fact that he was a virgin birth documented in the text. But when I looked deeper in to see, well, maybe this was a mistake or maybe it was a mistranslation or did they remix this too? I found through the Apocrypha text that his grandmother was also a virgin birth. Now, this is really interesting. So we see this established bloodline here where through the grandmother comes his mother, and then through his mother comes him, both through in vitro fertilization, okay? This is advanced technology. Someone purposefully did this. This was not a mistake. This wasn't an accident. This is some type of genetic tinkering. This is how you make a zygote and do in vitro fertilization in modern terms, in modern science, to create a baby in a womb that... It came without having sex. And so that was for a purpose and a reason. And the only thing I can hypothesize is that the genetics that were added into this zygote, when you take an egg and you mix genetic material into the egg and then insert it into a womb, it must have been some of this DNA from the Anunnaki. So even though we all have Anunnaki DNA, and as some people have a little bit more, and maybe it could have even been that he would regain his memories from, from even maybe a past life, uh, and so forth as he got older. 
But what's interesting is, as he got older, he became the age of 12, Yeshua disappears from the Bible. Where does he go? There's a text called the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. And this Gospel of Holy Twelve, which of course was left out of the canonized Bible, talks about where he went. He went to go live in Egypt. So I said, let me hop on a plane and fly to Egypt. So I go to Egypt, <laughs> and I find the place that he lived in Coptic Cairo. And you can still go there till this very day. It's a shrine there inside of this. Now, it used to be the house, but now it's a church. It's a Coptic church, obviously. But the place where he slept and laid his head is still there, him and his mother. And their, their names are engraved into the windowsill there as well. And it's kept very safe. So anyone from anywhere in the world with a passport can fly to the place where he actually slept as a child and a teenager. He then left from there and went up into Tibet to learn Qigong and Reiki healing and healing with the hands and energy, moving energy around the body and so forth. And that was confirmed by the Dalai Lama. And then he left from there and went to India to learn the mystic arts, teaching reincarnation all the way back into Egypt. And then when he got back to Egypt, this is when he's 32 years old, the Bible picks up, I call my son out of Egypt. That's where the exact phrase is in the Bible. And he comes out of Egypt, he appears in Jerusalem, riding in on the back of a donkey. So this is the, the whole missing era of his life that existed. It's not missing. It was purposefully left out to create this ideology and this dogma about who Jesus is and was. Now, more recently, they found the book of Jesus's wife, which is actually in the Harvard Seminary. So they believe now that he got married, most likely to Mary Magdalene, and most likely had children, which would be the Merovingian bloodline, which is probably still walking the earth till this very day. In the Sinai Bible, he never was crucified. So in the Sinai Bible predates the King James Version of the Bible. So I'm more likely to believe the older text is closer to the truth. So in my personal opinion, the crucifixion is about consciousness. Being born again and being baptized is having to do with raising your level of consciousness to a higher level. Nothing to do with splashing water, nothing to do with getting tied up to a cross and hung and so forth. I believe that those are all misinterpretations or maybe by accident or maybe on purpose, or they did it to manipulate the minds of the people. I think that the true message here is that we are here to save ourselves and that we are here to forgive ourselves and you can't move forward. You can't, you can't turn on the inner light inside of you and activate it until you learn how to forgive yourself. It's, it's remarkable, Billy, that, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is it's stuff that there is historical you know, records of, uh, and it's not just like, Hey, let's talk about the earth being flat. Uh, yeah. because we, by the way, there's going to be at least four or five comments just of because course. I said that, just because of course. I said that. They're, gonna know. they're going to go crazy. They're going to go, they're zealots. That's why. Right. Right. So it's not like we're making up stuff. This is all kind of based on ancient text, ancient history, ancient, um, sources, but let me ask you this, in your opinion, because you are you are on the front line as well as Graham is on trying to get this information out to the world. Yeah. Why do you feel that there's that people are so threatened by information of that doesn't connect with their dogma, their foundational, their psychological foundation? Because you say mm -hmm. something, and I've used this example on the show before, is like if I believe in the the Christian dogma or whatever dogma, it doesn't matter. 
And all of a sudden you throw in a new concept that makes sense, but does not connect with what I've been taught. And I'm like, well, reincarnation, well, I, if I believe in reincarnation, I can't believe in everything I've been taught by my parents, by my church, right. by my culture, by my society. Wait a minute. Then they were all wrong. And am I wrong? Mm -hmm. and, and then it just, it's just like a domino effect of losing yourself. Hence mm -hmm. why they stop. They want to fight. They want to protect. They yeah. want to go out. To, what is your opinion? Mm -hmm. on, on, on how do you deal with it? Yeah. Because I got to believe yeah. that you get some pushback. <laughs> I, get, I get death threats. Yeah. And people always say to me, you know, you're not afraid of the government. You know, I'm like, the only people that threaten me and have threatened to actually kill me, you know, actually tell me they're going to shoot me in the head and shoot me between the eyes and kill me and so forth. And when I go to the conference, I'll be dead. And these are all zealots. These are have nothing to do with government. You know, people who believe in religion, dogma, uh, flat earthers have given me death threats, you know, so. There's no government agency coming to try to, you know, I'm not big enough yet. Maybe when I get 15, 20 million people following me. But right now, the people I have to worry about, I have to protect myself again out of the zealots. Those are the people, most dangerous people on the planet. And the evidence of this is, look at all the wars that have happened on this planet. <laughs> it's the zealots, the people who are into the dogma and the hardcore belief systems. They will kill you over a, uh, over a political belief. They will kill you over a religious belief or any other type of dogmatic belief system that they've ingrained into themselves. And the reason why people get so angry and offended and pissed off and afraid when you bring up the types of topics that we're talking about today is because, like I say all the time, when they were born, they were given a name, a race, and a religion, and now they've been defending a false identity since they've been born. And now, all of a sudden, here I come, I show up on the scene, and I'm ripping that false identity away from them. I'm snatching it from their soul. And that hurts them because every single cell in their body is vibrating and resonating to that programming code that they've been given since birth. And now it feels alone. It feels naked. If you take a, a baby, right? A newborn baby comes out of the womb and you put it right on the mother's chest. The baby is calm, right? It's calm. It's relaxed. The second that the nurse comes and takes that baby away from the mother, that thing is kicking and screaming. It wants body contact. It wants the mother's heat. It wants warmth. It wants the smell of the mother. It's the same thing when you snatch somebody's belief system. They feel naked. They feel exposed. And especially the older they are, the worse it is because now they realize, <laughs> oh my God, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, this information might be invalid. This information that I believe in so dogmatically that I've held so close to my heart all these decades might not even be close to the truth. And now what? No, no, no. I had one guy tell me, he was actually a pastor. I know you're probably right, but I got to do this anyway, just in case. <laughs> so what it tells me is this also, which takes me to the second part of my answer. People, the majority, not I wouldn't say 100%, but I would say 90% of the people that are into religion and dogmatic belief systems are doing it for one reason and one reason only, because they believe that if they don't do it, they won't survive in an afterlife for all eternity in peace and tranquility. In other words, what, what they're really saying is, I'm doing this to save my ass. Because if I don't do this, there's a chance I might be cast into this lake of fire. So what it proves to me is there is no true real love for these entities and these beings that they're worshiping and praying to and it's so fear. forth. And it's fear. it's fear. It's pure, unadulterated fear. That's what it really is. And because of that, They've grabbed on to this thing so tight, they don't want to release it because the fear of this lake of fire and this damnation 
has got a grip on them and they've given that to their kids and their kids are getting to their kids and so forth and so on. And that's the real reason why they're holding on so tight. Reach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're absolutely, absolutely right, my friend. It is. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. I have it. I, I get it to a certain extent here on the show because even people who just like near death experiences are all BS and this mm -hmm. or that because like that they can't understand the concept of like oh it's pure love on the other side, and yeah. this is one life, and you have another mm -hmm. one that you're going to reincarnate, and you're all just throws them out completely when you have yeah. thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people talking about these mm. concepts. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. Now, I want to go back to uh, Egypt for a second. The pyramids, mm. the pyramids. Yeah. You, you, we're estimating that they're around 36,000 years old, according to- At to least. Rome, at least. The, and the reason that, why is because, uh -huh. well, I'll just say real quick, in the tablets, Thoth's father tells him to build a great sphinx and put his face on it. That's about 36,000 years ago. And then the face that we see on the Sphinx now is something that the Egyptians did later on because it doesn't it's look actually, proportionate. proportionate not right? proportionate, correct. So people, these archaeologists hypothesize it used to be a lion's head. It was never a lion's head. It was always a man's face. That they never, either they read the tablets and they want to ignore the tablets or they want to come up with their crazy hypothesis that doesn't exist out of their brain. But what the tablets say is it was, it was the face of Thoth. Even though he's depicted with the face of an ibis bird, that's not his real face. That's a mask, obviously. It's, it's an archetype or metaphor based on bringing darkness to light. But his face was on there because Enki ordered it to be his face. At that time, his name was Ningazita in ancient Sumerian texts. If you look up Ningazita in the Sumerian text, you'll find out that the face of the Sphinx was his. It was aligned to the constellation Leo, which was his time to rule over the land of Kemet. And then what happened was him, him and his brother... Uh, Marduk, a.k.a. Amun-Ra, started having these head-to-head -head battles, and Thoth left and went to Mesoamerica. And when he left, his brother recarved the face much later to the face of his sons. So it's Thoth's nephew's face now that was carved into the Sphinx. And that's the face of his nephew, the son of Amun-Ra. That's the face that's up there now. That's why it's, it's not proportional to the size of the body. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So if the, if the, if the Great Pyramid and the pyramid uh, structures were built at least 36,000 years ago, how the hell did they do it? It's pretty interesting. And, you know, and people say, how do you come up with this 36,000? Well, it's not just because of the, the tablets were written 36,000 years ago. But when you look at the cycle of the procession of the equinoxes, you discover that if you go back one procession, you know, because of all the extinction level events that were going on through just natural geological disasters, it's like, hmm, not a good time to be building a sphinx and megalithic structures because we know for a fact that that, that one extinction level event where an asteroid struck uh, close to the North Pole area, but it extended out disasters all the way down into Africa. So why would you be building pyramids and sphinxes when that's going on? You just wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. So you go back another processional period, you're right at 36,000 years ago. So you go back two processional periods, you have the Emerald Tablets of Thoth saying, I Thoth builded the Great Pyramid patterned after Earth's force so that it too might remain through the ages. You have that text right there. And then you have the evidence of the weathering of the sphinx. Mm -hmm. And you go, wait a minute, these things are super, super ancient. 
Now, when you look at the way that Thoth talks about building the pyramids, there's a couple things that intrigue me. One, he talks about the ability to manifest stone through conscious thought and cymatic frequencies. He uses the light from his own being, right? So he's using conscious light waves and what? Cymatic frequencies to manifest blocks. This is crazy because mm -hmm. when I looked into it at the time, when I first read that, I couldn't find any science that we can even come close to doing anything like that until recently, until about maybe I think it was uh, three and a half years ago, scientists for the very first time in a laboratory used photonic energy, light wave energy, and frequencies, cymatic frequencies, sound to manifest real matter into existence. And this is now peer-reviewed science. Again, we have rediscovered what was talked about in ancient tablets 36,000 years ago, the ability to use waves and cymatics to create solid matter. So not all the stones were created that way. Some were harvested from a quarry and some were actually manifested into existence. And I believe in my personal opinion that just from being underneath the pyramid, being inside the middle of it, being inside the top, I believe that these, the, the Great Pyramid, for example, was built from the top down. Hard to believe, hard, hard concept to understand. But what's interesting is one of these X-Men movies that came out, yeah, so this I ancient god, which is supposed to be Thoth, I guess, he, Amun-Ra, he's building the pyramid from the top down. The old, it's the older one. Maybe it came out seven years ago or so, but it's yeah, pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Apocalypse, yeah, apocalypse, yeah. Apocalypse, yeah. right, exactly. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, I just said this on a video like two months ago. It was crazy because that, you know, then that came out, the, the trailer came out. It was crazy. But uh, there's other ancient texts that talk about, you know, uh, 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 the, the pyramid coming from the top down. But it's really a super advanced structure when you look at the way it's laid out, all the compartments mm. on the inside, yeah. uh, and all the hidden chambers that exist. And of course, hidden secret exits that exist in there because the people who are building from the inside didn't want to be locked or, or enclosed in there and their bodies have never been found, which means they've gotten out some type of way. It's a real super duper structure. Now, this structure of the Great Pyramid is a multifunctional stone computer. It's not just a pyramid that can generate electricity. It's not just a pyramid that can mark the location of stars in the sky. It has a multifunction. If you look at the way it was sitting on top of the aquifer when water used to flow underneath it, when the Nile was much closer, that water would create physiostatic electricity, which would send ions up into the pyramid, which would then be amplified up the Grand Gallery into the King's Chamber, which would then shoot through the apex, which would be transmitted to obelisks around the region to be captured as wireless electricity, which can then be captured by the ancient Egyptians through something called jeds, that had cables at the end of them where they can use light bulbs, they can do gold plating and so forth, which we know they did. The other thing is a certain amount of that water would flow up into the base and go down into the queen's chamber, which used to use electrolysis to extract hydrogen atoms. And those atoms would then be pushed through the shafts and pointed at star systems when alignments happen. And what do we use hydrogen for right now in modern times? Communication through vast distances of space. We're trying to commit contact with ET right now. We're trying to contact ET right now. And what are we using? The hydrogen frequency. The same thing the Great Pyramid was doing. They were sending messages to Aldebaran, to Orion, to uh, Sirius. All these star systems that we align with, they were communicating, hey, this is a, an update as to what's happened in the last 10 years here down on Earth. And then the other thing is um, 
of course, the fact that it gives you a complete breakdown. Once you analyze the size and dimensions of the stones and the mm -hmm. blocks, you can break down the, the, the year. You can calculate the distance from the Earth to the moon. You can calculate the distance from the Earth to the sun. You can calculate the speed of the Earth on its axis. You can calculate the speed no. of the Earth around the sun and the speed of the sun around the galactic equator. You can even calculate the speed of our galaxy around the local cluster, all from the dimensions of the Great Pyramid. So they encoded all this information in a way that it could it could be eventually uh, downloaded or transcribed yeah. by people who would mm -hmm. get it later on. It's kind of like the whole, you know, I could put a movie on a DVD, but in a thousand yeah. years, there's not going to be a DVD player to play it. It would just right. be a, a disc. So they yeah. had to figure out a way that mm -hmm. could go beyond language, which is math, which is the ultimate math. language of the universe. That's it. That's, a, that's the language of God. The language of God is mathematics, period, point blank. Now, I, I know this is going to be a bigger question, and we might have to come back to do another episode on this one, but the the Hindu culture and the mm -hmm. Indian culture, they we kind of touched upon this vast history of of what the you know of of the anunnaki and, and the wars and all of this kind of stuff what do you know about the origins of arguably one of the oldest known cultures in in the world because the vedic texts are some of the oldest texts that we and they say you know it's six thousand years of course four or five thousand years but the but the but the but the Indians and the Hindus and the priests say no, this mm -hmm. goes back ten thousand yeah. years, fifteen thousand years. Uh, this information. So what what information do you have about that culture? How they built the pyramids mm -hmm. that they built? What's mm -hmm. I mean, that's a whole world. Yeah. Listen, what's interesting about that culture and all these cultures is that they are so ancient, right? So I'm getting ready to do some research on different temples. And one of them is in India, the Kailash temples, right? Where they took a mountain and carved a mountain from the outside yes. going in to create yeah. those temples. Oh, insane. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm comparing it to the Lalibela temples at Ethiopia done the same exact way. They carved an entire mountain to a temple from the outside going in. And then Abu Simbel, same exact technique. Jordan, same exact technique. So I'm going to document these temples and show the tool marks and the techniques all identical. Again, one master architect, just different relief designs. And you begin to see that these people were under the same tutelage or had the same knowledge as the master architect that came and helped, you know, kickstart civilization. In other words, that one person didn't build all this stuff, but taught this knowledge to other people. When you look at the Indian text, you discover in some cases, in some uh, areas that I've read, it could be 100,000 years old, 200,000 years old. But that, for me, matches also against some of the ancient Sumerian tablets, referencing a time frame of around 400. So this is really super, super duper ancient information. And when you begin to analyze some of the tablets, the Sumerian, you begin to realize that these people that they were calling the, um, they call them the savants, the heroes of all the savants. They were different looking people. In other words, they look like different races of people. And I was like, man, this is pretty incredible. Not only do they look like different races based on the descriptions of them, but then they all went around the planet and duplicated civilizations or built civilizations. 
And that's when I started getting an idea. Let me research the genetics of the human being and find out why are we different races? Because we should all be the same race. Right. And then I found that there was a 2% variance in genetic material between races of people. And even modern day geneticists say, for that to happen in only 200,000 years is impossible. It should have taken millions of years to get black, white, Hispanic, blah, 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 all these different races, you know. And so Asian. And so what they realized was that this is an artificial mutation. I go back to the tablets again, my reference point, And I realized that the reason why we have different races of people is because... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. These beings were different races. Even one married one from a different planet. So what they did was they ruled over, let's say in India, a particular region of the planet, and they would genetically brand us to mark us. This shows up again in the Bible. So we're genetically branded. Black people are not black. I'm not dark brown because my ancestors worked in the sun. That's stupid. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard about. Their son in America. (laughs) Their son in China. (laughs) I mean, their son everywhere, I hate to say. Hot son, too. It's crazy. It's crazy. The first time I read that, I I laughed. But I found out it's not because of that. It's because it's a genetic brand. Caucasian, genetic brand. We found the genetic brand, according to the text, the first Caucasians came out of the Caucasus Mountains, right? That's over there by Russia. So we're talking about this genetic branding that occurred. And the Indians, they had a genetic branding as well. That's why those people look at a particular way. The Asians, the same thing. It's pretty interesting. So this genetic branding occurred. But these beings also had some blue people. And they also had recorded blue people in Egypt. All right. So all of a sudden, you see these different colored people. And Osiris uh, was green. Ra, not Amra, but Ra was blue. And then you have the Indian beings or the Indian gods that were also blue, right? And so it's this crazy thing. And the deeper you look, you realize, man, these were a multiracial group of beings that came to this planet. They were all hominids, though, that in some way had made a pact to uh, uh, do a breakaway civilization on Earth. Uh, and they worked and in, in, um, in, uh, coll- colluded together for some time before all these crazy wars broke out. Probably sec- the second or third generation greed, you know, quest for power and all that kind of crept in because initially it was peace and tranquility. And then all of a sudden everything went to pot. So at some point that's what happened. But these ancient cultures out of India have some of the most deepest spiritual knowledge, the most esoteric wisdom, the deepest understanding of the higher levels of meditation and how to get into those levels of meditation, mystic capabilities, mystic powers, all this comes out of there. They had the records of the Vermonters and the flying UFOs that they had, the flight plans, the designs on how to make them, the information on what they were made out of, and all this stuff has already been discovered. It's not even a mystery anymore. And of course, some of the most vast amount of text and records that we can actually get our hands on, we found coming out of India. So these people are super ancient. It goes back into this ancient culture of advanced beings that arrived here on this planet. And I do believe that the reason why we have mixed races is because each race of people were genetically modified or genetically tinkered with to be branded. In the Bible, you find out that Cain is kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And he's asking God, he's going, God, who's actually really in Lil in the Bible, he's saying, the people out there are going to kill me. 
We shouldn't even be people out. What people? There shouldn't be people out there. Who's out there? There's millions <laughs> right. of people that are already on the planet. But why would they kill you? Because they, they well, he says, don't worry, I'm going to put a mark on you. So then God puts a mark on Cain so that the people out there will recognize, oh, this is his boy. This is Lil's boy, Yahweh. This is Yahweh's. Well, we ain't going to mess with him. So he genetically put a mark on him to so people would know. And he said, when you find when you get out there, don't worry, you're going to find your wife and you'll give, build this whole civilization called the Canaanites. But so again, evidence of someone stepping in and genetically tinkering with us to give us this particular look so that people would know, oh, that's his group or that's his group or that's her group. Don't touch them. And that's how it happened. Um, we talked a little bit about the the mystery school in Egypt. Can you discuss what, I mean, that sounds cool as hell. What is yeah. inside of the mystery school? What did they teach <laughs> in the mystery schools in Egypt that Jesus yeah, was? Yeah, the mystery schools, deep, deep stuff. I, I did a 36-hour mystery school class, 36 hours. Uh, it's all on my Forbidden Off TV channel. It's uh, you know broken down into hour segments or 45-minute segments, and I still barely touched the surface of the information. I could have gone on for two, 300 hours, but these mystery schools were put in place. And the very first ones, according to the Emerald Tablets were started by Thoth, right? He's known as Dehudi or Jehudi in Africa. And he would use this system of teaching where he would get only adept initiates. In other words, handpicked people that for whatever reason, he felt they had the privilege, they deserved the privilege of hearing this sacred knowledge and information that he had carried, that had been passed on to him for eons and eons, he says. And so in these classes in schools, it would be uh, philosophy, esoteric wisdom, you know, scientific knowledge, everything from sacred geometry to quantum physics, to understanding the philosophy of the world, understanding higher dimensions, how to travel to dimensions. I mean, we're talking about the most incredible uh, set of information or knowledge that you can get anywhere was in these mystery schools and you had to be handpicked to be able to get in, which Yeshua, we talked about earlier from the Bible, a.k.a. Jesus, was one of these hand-picked adept initiates at the age of 12, which is incredible. And then their job was to keep this information and knowledge sacred so it would pass on through time. The problem that we have is once these quote-unquote gods disappeared or left the planet, or, or maybe even some died, uh, the people who were in control of the information and the secrets of these mystery schools began to uh, form, fractalize, and form out these sacred, secret societies. And these secret societies, like Skull and Crossbones and Illuminati and so forth and so on, you know, there's, there's a million of them, they all realized that, wow, hmm, there is a force that exists, but the force is neutral. It can be good or it can be evil. It's up to the wielder of the knowledge. And they began to realize that if they can wield the knowledge in one direction, they can have an enormous amount of power and control over masses and extreme wealth. And so these secret societies all came out of ancient Egyptian mystery schools. And then they began to utilize the knowledge and the power and the light for darkness because it works both ways. And they still have a heavy grasp on the, the majority of civilization till this very day. Billy, man, I'm going to be able to, you got to come back, man, because we could talk for another <laughs> 10 days on, 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 on this stuff, man. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to ask yeah. you a few questions to ask all my guests. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Oh, man. My definition of living a fulfilled life is to be able to walk in abundance 24-7. 
My objective on a, on a daily basis is peace and abundance. And when I wake up, I expect abundance. I don't hope for abundance. I don't pray for abundance. I don't wish I had abundance. I expect peace and abundance over my life every single day. And I will it into existence every single day, nonstop. And no matter what comes at me, no matter what blindsides me, I stay true to that. I solve the problem. I don't see issues that come up as problems anymore. I see them as things that need to be solved. I find the solutions and I keep on moving, but I walk in abundance 24 seven. If you can go back in time and speak to the young boy that used to be you, what advice would you give him? I would say for that person to not only continue the studies that you're already on, but to understand that there are going to be a lot of dark brothers as Thoth calls them, the Emirates is coming you know, your way. Things are going to blindside you, things that are going to distract you and take you off your course. But to stay fast, hold tight, and stay the course, uh, because I did have a couple of distractions along the way in my life, as we all do. I think I could have been even far along by now than where I'm at in terms of helping humanity and raising conscience on this planet. But again, it's a process you have to go through. But if I can go back, I'd say, just be prepared. Because I really wasn't prepared. I got blindsided a few times before I realized, oh, this is a natural part of the cycle. But I would say to be prepared for these things and be prepared to look for solutions immediately and don't get distracted. How do you define God? I define God as the natural spark that created everything in the entire universe. And that same spark that inhabits every single atom in the universe inhabits every single atom inside of my body. And that my spiritual source that is animating this avatar body comes from one source and one source only. And that I'm just a fractal of that universal consciousness or that God power, that God energy. And that I'm here to experience life as Billy Carson for a very, very extremely brief moment before I reconnect to source and regenerate somewhere else as something else. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? I believe the ultimate purpose of life right now is to uh, here in the third dimension is a proving ground to learn your lessons, to gain knowledge and information, to transmit back to source what it's like to be Billy Carson, what it's like to be a blade of grass. What is it like to be a rock? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And to provide that information and to learn from situations as a sentient being, how to become better, how to become stronger, how to ascend consciously, and how to really defeat the third dimension and then ascend to higher dimensions. And Billy, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing, brother? You can find me on 4Bidden Knowledge with the number 4, 4BiddenKnowledge.com. And of course, 4BiddenKnowledge.tv. And they can watch a lot of my shows by just going to 4BK, the number 4 bk.tv on the web browser or go to your local app store on any device and go to get the forbidden knowledge tv app and do you have any parting messages for the audience my friend i would just say you know keep the faith in terms of humanity it's uh, at times it does look bleak it does look like humanity is falling and failing and we're flipping and flopping around but when you really analyze history as i've did you'll find that it's the greatest time to be alive Right now is the greatest time. We're not even close to the end of days. The end of days is not now. If it was going to be the end of days, it would have been thousands of years ago when we had a lot of catastrophes going on, geological catastrophes. It would have been hundreds of years ago when we had the Black Plague, when we had the Bubonic Plague, 
when we had the papal inquisitions, 80 million people being slaughtered for the purpose of putting pushing out religion, when we had the American Holocaust, 111 million indigenous peoples being slaughtered and killed over 70 years. We don't have that going on right now. There are wars and things going on here and there sporadically throughout, throughout the planet. There is poverty here and there. Overall, though, it's time for mankind to ascend. It's time for us to finally pull up our bootstraps and get ready to do the work. The work is unconditional love, service to others, and spreading knowledge and information that helps uplift and inspire people, period, point blank. And that's what we're here to do. Billy, on that note, I appreciate you and everything you're doing to awaken this planet, my friend. You will Thank come you. back for part two. There's no question. I appreciate oh, yeah. you. For sure. We have to, man. <laughs> I want to thank Billy so much for coming on the show and sharing all of his knowledge and experience with us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 261. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.